This is Talking Ears. My name is Frank Wardinger. This is a bonus episode featuring recent guest, fellow music audiologist, Dr. Heather Maliak. In her episode, we talked about her relationship with music and with her music career leading her into music audiology. Because it's a lot of shop talk, we split this out into a separate episode. Here, we're going to talk a lot about what musicians should expect from a music audiology visit, about how it's not just about the equipment that you're putting in your ears, but also about how you use it and the services that you seek. Throughout this episode, we'll be hearing music by and featuring Heather Malia. If you look at the field of audiology and you start talking to a lot of audiologists, many of them are musicians. Mm Mm-hmm and sound engineers. And many of them have degrees in music and they really love music. But I think you and I know that the field of music audiology, one of the reasons why it's so small, while it does help that we have a background in music, it's a different set of best practices. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of hard to get that training. I know you and I have worked on things to make that easier for audiologists, but it is a specialty. I mean, like any other healthcare profession or any other doctorate, there are subspecialties Mm -hmm. uh, that take a little extra time and learning and care and experience. That being said, the people who have worked as musicians, probably if they get through that sort of specialized training, would do better than a non-musician because they get it. They get different aspects of it. Right. I'm thinking of a couple things I saw recently online, audiologists who are marketing themselves as music audiologists, and the the wording on this one clinic sign was ear mold impressions for musicians. That's what they're marketing. Someone else's business card I've seen is just impressions for mm-hmm. musicians. Um, and it is so much more than that. And while, while I wouldn't start suddenly programming cochlear implants tomorrow <laughs> without learning it, I will say, though, to any audiologist listening, we do need more. Yes. I think that... I think that you and I would encourage anybody to get into this field. There aren't enough of us who are doing things the right way. And I actually said this on a panel discussion I was on this morning. You have to see your first patient sometime. Yeah, that's true. So don't wait until you feel like you're the expert. If I would have waited until I felt like I knew everything about everything, I maybe wouldn't be where I am now. So you do have to dive in at some point. And you can dive in with a mentor. So mm-hmm. myself, you know, or you, Frank, and and have us on the phone, yeah. have us, you know, text us if there's a problem, that kind of thing. Completely, right? So if the patient coming to you uses their ears for a living, yeah. unlike the vast majority of people, if they use their ears for a living, they need the best care. They don't need cursory care. Mm-hmm. I love that you said that you got to have your first patient and and we need more people we need we need 20 music audiologists in each small city in the US to cover mm-hmm. everybody that would be amazing mm-hmm. or people who understand the bare minimum best practices and like you said we've published those they're publicly available um, and we're happy to talk about it so there's no gatekeeping here there's no oh, elitism no. at all it's more It's an invitation and a dialogue, right? It's an invitation and a dialogue. I have 
a higher tick by tick, month by month, I keep seeing more musicians call me for service saying things like, and I just want to make sure that I'm getting a hearing test or, and I just want to make sure that you offer some follow-up fitting check. Yes. And I love that because I just get so excited that like, I don't know where you heard those words, but thank you. Yes, we are now cutting through. Yeah, absolutely. When I have a musician somewhere who calls me and I'm looking for an audiologist near them, I I think people have this misconception that a music audiologist is someone who takes ear impressions really well, which of course we do. Like we are exceptionally good at it and do it in a different way than for hearing aids. But I don't look for a clinic who can take good ear impressions. Right. You know, I might call around and say, can you test extended high frequencies? Can you yeah. do a fit check on earplugs? Can you, you know, all this and that, because that's what it's really about is the care portion. I'm so thrilled to hear people are asking you about those things. And I feel so like exciting. from our sort of ancestors in music audiology who've been doing this since the 80s, and here we are in 2022, something's finally sticking, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah, you and Over I are lucky. Forty we years, get to, we get to stand on the shoulders of giants. I mean, absolutely. You know, and oh, and it's so easy for us so now easy. compared to like I think of in the eighties, and we can name them: Michael Santucci and yeah. Lisa Tannenbaum and Marshall Chasen and Mead Killian. My goodness, when they started doing things, they didn't have boothless texting technology. Yep. They didn't have access to all the things that we have now, all the research that we have our our hands on, all the things that we can learn and teach to musicians. You know, they started with nothing. And it's I if I were one of them, I would be looking at the field now saying, what are you guys doing squandering all this amazing mm-hmm. technology and knowledge? Mm-hmm. Uh, why aren't you doing things yeah. the right way? We are so lucky. We really are. Yeah. And and hopefully that translates them into the music community because knowing what to ask for. If you just had your dithers to talk to every single musician before they walked into or called an audiology office, what should they ask for? Okay, so this, so I am going to talk about the curriculum for a second because 100%. I did think, I thought about this, which is why I made the curriculum. So I made a, I call it a curriculum, but it's not a, you don't take tests or anything. It's basically a video series. It's nine modules, lasts about a hundred minutes. And it was every piece of education that I give during an appointment, plus a lot of detail, animated graphics, like way more than I could ever give, you know, in an hour appointment knowing that audiologists don't do that. Mm-hmm. Like those of us who do it are extremely rare. When I talk about music audiologists who do that sort of level of education, I always say there's about six of us in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be like the first thing. I wanted something that I could send to a musician and say, watch all of this before your appointment. One of those modules is how to have an appointment with an audiologist. And it's honestly asking for a hearing test asking for extended high frequencies if they're available or any other kind of test. Maybe maybe you're going somewhere where they have autoacoustic emissions and you can have those done. Maybe some speech and noise testing, you know, but at minimum 250 hertz to 8,000 hertz to know how you need the ear impressions taken, to ask the audiologist ahead of time, can I bring my instrument and play while you're taking the ear impressions? Or can we schedule a time when I can do that, even if I need to come in early or whatever? Um, asking about 
follow-up fit checks, things like that. Maybe the people who call you called you saw my curriculum. I hope they did. Mm-hmm. Because that's that's like my little checklist. Yeah. You know, ahead of time. Um, because so many musicians we know they they call us and they say, Well, I yeah, I've been to an audiologist before. It was a 15-minute appointment for the molds. Yeah. So at least they can get the education portion, but that way they know what to ask for when they call. So mm-hmm. the clinic knows, okay, this person shouldn't be scheduled for 15 minutes like we do every other musician. Let's schedule them for a half hour, an hour, whatever, yep. so that everything can be done. Um, so yeah, so that's the checklist. And then I made the curriculum because I was like, well, even if an audiologist is really interested in this and they do some education, my education technique and what I've been learning is it's over a decade now of me mm-hmm. building that information. I even have some audiologists who have gotten the video series to learn kind of how I do things. Um, and I think, and I think you would agree that the education is almost more important than anything else. hundred percent. Yeah. Because if they understand why, and this was actually kind of the impetus behind this whole podcast, if I just let musicians talk and instead of talking at them, they understand how important their ears are and very often how to protect them from just a, a visceral experiential level in better words than I can say. So if they understand the why, because you educate them, like we usually, we can just be quiet. They're going to go have a conversation with their sound engineer. They're going to fix it, right? Well, sometimes if they can, sometimes. I mean, it depends what, what they're wearing. Of course, you know about the study I just did with Alex Mibus at the University of Akron and myself, we are studying in-ear monitors. That will be published pretty soon, that data, looking at isolation levels and output levels. Mm, say more about that. Yeah. One of the things we were looking at was, okay, for the marketing of in-ears, are they meeting isolation levels that they're marketing? Are they safety devices? How loud do they get, et cetera, et cetera. And what we found was the isolation was all over the place. There was a big difference between comfortable acrylic earpieces versus silicone. We did have one company that was acrylic that isolated very well, but they were very painful. Mm-hmm. Um you know, just things like that where uh, th- those of us who who kind of know these things will talk to people and say, well, such and such doesn't isolate as well. But we don't have proof. We should do things in an evidence-based way. You know what I mean? And so that was one of the reasons why this study I thought was so important was to start putting some some isolation values, some frequency responses of isolation. We did it through a REIT measurement which is a real ear attenuation at threshold. For those who don't know, it's it's in a sound field in a sound booth taking uh, threshold measurements, so a hearing test basically, uh, without the earpieces in and then with, with some masking noise in the other ear to keep it busy. Um, it was, it was kind of eye-opening for me. Yeah. And so that's why I say maybe. Well, if you have an artist who, who wants to care for themselves and they are using something like in-ear monitors and they do know in their mind what they should be doing, they might, they might not be able to. Mm. Yeah, and I have. <laughs> if they're a lot getting of, zero dB isolation in the lows, yeah. they're not going to be able to turn it down. Yeah, because I think what they're taught through advertising, through whatever, through the person who did the molds the first place, um, is you're getting molded in your monitors, and these protect you, which is just a mm-hmm. blanket statement that is nine times out of ten not true. Because molded doesn't mean isolating, like you said. It doesn't mean that it's separating you out from the stage volume, and it doesn't mean that you have any kind of uh, uh, limits to how much sound you're actually putting out through that in-ear monitor. Yeah. Um, And that's just not discussed 
nine times out of 10. And yeah. I don't expect people to make that jump on their own without a push. Yeah. And the, the output levels we were measuring were over 143 dBA Ooh. SPL. Ooh. And what was really funny was we did this in a studio setting. We went to a recording studio because uh -huh. the equipment we had at the clinic couldn't couldn't push things to where they needed to go. Oh, sure. And um, the acrylic in-ears, we couldn't physically touch after we did that because they were so hot. <laughs> we couldn't. <laughs> it was hilarious. We like couldn't get them out of the test box. We couldn't touch them because they were, I don't know how hot they were, but they were too hot to touch. Uh -huh. And I was like, I wonder what these feel like in your ear if you run them this high. Of course, I, I don't think anyone's running it at 143. I have measured, you know, 113, 115, mm -hmm. et cetera, on stage at a sound check. Um, and, and the, people wearing them in those instances thought, thought they were using them safely. Yeah. And that was with like isolating silicone. Yeah. Cause they feel like they were told that. Correct. And from a lot of Correct. musician standpoint, and I really do have a lot of patience isn't the right word. Sympathy isn't the right word, but empathy, I guess with this mentality that, you know, you're, you've been touring or playing or clubbing or, or, playing in bars, practice, practice rooms with wedge monitors as a band for years and years and years. And one day you decide to spend the money that you were going to spend on next month's rent. Mm -hmm. You're going to spend it on getting in-ear monitors because you're told that these are safe and you get them. And now you say, I did the safe thing. Yeah. Not knowing that the behavior has to come along with it because nobody, nobody mentioned that. Yeah, and also the kind of follow-up stuff. There, I had an idea a while ago, which I don't do because I'm not this organized, but I wanted to keep a list. <laughs> I'm just not. But you I wanted to keep an email list. <laughs> I should. Uh, an email list of people who are patients of mine who wear in-ears regularly, like my touring guys and stuff. And honestly, check in with them every few months mm -hmm. and ask how they're doing level-wise. Get Ship them something like a DB check, et cetera, mm -hmm. because you can train someone to be safe and fit them really well, and they're, they're doing great right off the bat, yep. and then they lose the plot a little bit, and yeah. levels go up. And so that concept of the annual hearing test and follow-up care and really, you know, I say about musicians having a relationship with a music audiologist, not just someone they go to see when they need a product. Um, mm -hmm. That's really what the hearing conservation part is. Yeah. Because, you know, your eyes, your, your ears get tired. You keep turning your pack up. Suddenly you're at that 115 where you had started the tour at, you know, 98 mm -hmm. or something. And it just got away from you. Yeah. Um, but without having a tool to read it, you don't know where you're at. Yeah, totally. And I don't even think a lot of people recognize or realize that, there are ways of measuring the output of a person's in-ear stage monitors. It's unfortunate, like that's just a full stop sentence. There are ways of measuring it. Um, seek them out. They will help you recognize what your outputs are. And now I've learned that they're even more beyond the Sensophonics DB check, the original one. And so it's nice to know that these things exist. Um, and I just wish that that more people were aware of it. And you don't have to use it every night. You check in, you train yourself, and you move, and you you learn to move forward. You know, people who play uh, amateur golf go and get their swings analyzed so that they can improve their swings and reduce their risk of injury. This that's the way that we should be working with 
pre pre tour before you guys head out before you get onto your rehearsals. Let's just check in. Let's make sure that your your ears are calibrated, <laughs> your in ears are are set to a point where you can know them, know your levels, know your belt pack settings to to hit where you're supposed to be, or where you want to be for the whole tour. do you see a musician who comes in and they say, well, I went to see an audiologist and they told me my hearing was fine, mm-hmm. but I know something's wrong. I get this all the time in my clinic. I just had a front of house engineer like a few weeks ago say that to me and I tested him and he was within normal limits, but he's dealing with some distortion and his extended highs had an asymmetry and this and that. He was told, congratulations, your hearing is beautiful. Yep. But he went in saying, I'm telling you, I have a problem. Mm-hmm. And then he left feeling dismissed and crazy. Yep. So how do you talk about that with that person who walks in and says the outside clinic said I'm fine, but I know in my heart, my ears aren't the way that they were last year. I tell him he's correct. Even before I tested him, Yep. even before I said anything, as soon as he walked in and he's telling me his story and he brought in the other test results, I said, well, no one knows your ears better than you. Uh, So number one, you are correct. If something seems different, it is. Let's see if we can figure out why or not. Well, he hadn't had extended high frequencies tested at the other clinic. So I ended up, my equipment only goes to 16K. When I was at Sensophonics, I could go up to 18. And I know some clinics go up to 20. So I go up to 16 because that's what I can do. And he did have an asymmetry. And it was exactly where he told me it was. And he actually remembers the event when it happened. And I think it, I th- I'm blanking. I think it was his left ear that had the problem. And he's noticing, he notices the asymmetry. He notices like a slight distortion, although it was on, it was resolving already. And he noticed a tremendous difference, like just in his overall hearing ability in background noise, that kind of uh-huh. thing. And just him seeing the hearing test and me showing him that his ears were different validating what he said to me. And then of course he had, you know, a million questions about what he can do to prevent further injury. He really scared him. That was, that was enough to Mm -hmm. start the conversation about hearing conservation. He didn't have a notch yet, you know, at three to six K anyway, it just took a little extra diagnostics. I guess a little, I don't know what the right wording would be recognition of him as a person in his field. Yeah, I guess like I don't uh, I'm actually working on an article right now. and I think I'm going to call it whose hearing is it anyway? <laughs> he owns his hearing. I don't. Yeah. The, uh, the other audiology clinic doesn't. If he says he's having a problem, he's having a problem. Yeah. You know, and he he was bothered enough by this to seek me out because he knew he knew something was going on. And the other clinic said to him, like, Honestly, I think they said the classic line, you hear better than I do, right. you know, like one of those things. And he was like, what the heck? I'm telling you, I'm having a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, so, and to use a word that I recently learned from you, his hearing profile changed. It ch- totally changed and he knew it. And, yeah. uh, you know, I it, now granted, granted, looking at his hearing test, yes, even in the extended highs, an audiologist would look at it and say, he's got like way above average, beautiful hearing. Yeah. And I did say that to him. I said, your hearing really is great, but obviously something happened with the left ear. Mm -hmm. 
Like, because I think there was like a 20, 25 dBA symmetry, mm-hmm. um, which, which he told me was fresh. It's no different than looking at a sprinter, a professional track and field sprinter and, and saying, wow, you run faster than me. And the person saying, I'm running 20 seconds slower than I used to because of this injury. Yeah. Just because you run faster than me doesn't mean that your ears aren't right. what they used to be. Right. I, I loved hearing you talk about the hearing profile. And I love the response that you got when you were on um, uh, Signal to Noise when mm. you presented that term. Is that something that you've thought about some more? Because I've never heard anybody say, instead of hearing loss, instead of test results, any of that kind of stuff, hearing profile, I, I loved how inclusive that was mm-hmm. of not just changes to your hearing profile, but also that incorporates your quiet intensity and your loud intensity profile. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause it's more than just the audiogram. I get so frustrated with the audiogram just between you and me and your thousands of listeners uh, because it hasn't changed in so long. Yeah. We're testing pure tones at threshold. And yes, there is a diagnostic purpose for it, but that's not really how we use our ears. Mm-hmm. And yes, it can show us sensory neural hearing loss or conductive hearing loss, retrochoclear components, all this stuff. But when you're talking to a musician, well, really anybody, I use it with my non-musicians too, you're talking about their body. Mm-hmm. And with, with the music industry, you're not just talking about their body, you're talking about the tool, the, the gear, the instrument they play every day, and it's a different type of conversation. Yeah. It's totally different. I mean, I have these wonderful people who are repeat offenders. You know, I see them annually. I get to track their hearing. And I do have some who have incredibly deep noise notches and who have a lot of what we would call noise-induced sensory neural hearing loss. But they're playing great. They're working beautifully. I mean, it's not in their way. They're not dealing with intense disorders that are preventing anything. It just happens to be their hearing profile. Mm-hmm. It is not in their way at all musically. Um, and, and sometimes I'll use the term hearing loss if we're talking about other aspects like amplification, hearing aids, or things like that for day-to-day life. But uh, when you're talking about someone whose whole world is sound and they're using sound differently, it's mm-hmm. a different way of interacting with sound. And I do think it calls for different language. And I don't think I invented that. I'm sure I didn't because there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> I mean, I just... It's a term I use, but I bet you if we polled older audiologists, somebody else has. I think you know? I like I like it outside of the audiology terms because I feel like it's the way that I talk with my fellow recording engineers. Is like mm. like when you listen to these speakers, what do you hear? When you listen to this microphone, what do you hear? Because what I hear is an extra sibilance. What is your ears? What's translating to your ears? It's very much the Mm -hmm. same level of conversation when you say like, well, that's because my hearing profile sets me up really well for mastering work because I can, I can, I have a much more balanced or finite sense at threshold or my hearing profile sets me up for live work because I feel like at loud levels, I'm not getting distortions. Mm -hmm. Personally, I have a pretty bad hearing profile for loud work because I have a lot of loud distortions when things get overly loud, or at least that's how I perceive it. So I just wish that that was the way that we could talk about the whole sum hearing. I've heard some audio engineers, I have one in mind, and I can't remember if he was studio or live. He may have done both. Um, 
call it his personal frequency response. Mm-hmm. I thought nice. that was cute. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's another way to look at it, too. I mean, our ears are like microphones. It's <laughs> like, well, this is my personal frequency response. And I was like, okay. No, I like, I like it. that. It, it's the same. It's It's all running together of like seeing these flappy things on your head as tools that are lenses that you see the world through or hear the world through. And yeah. changes to that are significant. Small changes to your hearing profile are significant to a musician. Just like if you drop a microphone and it slightly sounds different, I might not be able to use that microphone anymore, even though it still works. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. sounds different. So I'm not going to use that, right? If there's something wrong with it or something off, but you're left with this one set of ears. So like you just have to learn your new hearing profile versus, well, how do I work with hearing loss is a different conversation than how do I learn this new hearing profile? Yeah, it's just the same as we talk about using hearing protection or using in-ear monitors in a safe way. It's like learning a new instrument mm-hmm. or like like training to a new set of ears. And I always say that to musicians. When I always say to them, okay, when did you start playing? And it's usually like, oh, I've been playing my whole life. Okay, well, you've been ear training to the same ears for a very long time. You can't just put in earplugs once and then say, oh, these don't work for me mm-hmm. because you've changed the instrument. It's like getting a new instrument. You need a period of of training to it to get used to it. So uh, it's the same thing when your hearing profile shifts a little bit. Of course, that front of house engineer I brought up, um, I mentioned his distortion was already, quote, resolving. Now, based on our other conversation, well, is it really resolving or is he working with it? I don't know. But um, he's going to work beautifully. Yeah. You know, his brain will recalibrate and he'll be fine. And the benefit of it with him because it wasn't super severe, but it was enough to scare him a little to come into a clinic, um, he got to learn a lot about hearing conservation. And as a result, will probably save his hearing for the rest of his career now. And that's kind of a good, that's a good end result for what happened. Yeah. Yeah. It got him to move. Yeah. Got him to think. seems to be not a movement but this this idea now in the concert scene and from front of house that things should be regulated mm-hmm. that things shouldn't get too loud and I'm not a fan of that I think that people should should be in loud sound if they want to be you know yeah. if they're educated about protecting themselves and even when people come to see me for appointments I always say to them I'm not the ear police it's one of okay. my lines I educate Again, I don't own their hearing. They do. They're in charge of it. If they come and see me for education and they learn everything and they get a hearing test and they decide they want to go see my bloody Valentine and have their, you know, eardrums (laughs) blown out, Mm -hmm. they should have every right to do that. Of course. I support their right to do that. Um, I don't think it it should be limited. I don't think it should be regulated. However, we could do a better job of educating. Yep. I was just talking with Michael Lawrence and he was talking about the responsibility that comes with when you're driving a giant system that is capable of so much hazard 
right? Mm-hmm. It's capable of so much good, but it's also capable of so much hazard. It's the same responsibility as driving a car. I mean, you you have a piece of technology that could hurt people. There's there's just things around us that it takes responsibility to own and run. Sound systems are one of them. So my question would be, are you going to make every monitor engineer out there use DB check and cap the pack to 95, 93 DB? Yeah, no. That would be my follow-up to that. And then um, uh, an acoustic instrument. I can yeah. play loud enough that it gets to 100 in my ears. Am mm-hmm. I? Do I need to be limited somehow? No, you just need to be put in jail for doing that. I mean, that's that's what I'm saying. It's <laughs> like you can't. Once you start on this regulation slope, it's like okay, well, you can't just do it for, you know, the audience. Yes, you could. I, I do think signage would be cool. Mm-hmm. That was talked about on that podcast. You know, educational signage. Hey, this might mm-hmm. hurt your hearing. Um, it would be great to see earplugs more readily available at concerts. I know in Australia, do you remember Siobhan McGinnity was part of, yep. I think it was a paper that came out where they were looking at putting in quiet spaces in venues, almost like sound booths that people could go into for a break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought that was way cool. That is way cool. Yeah. Like little break rooms. Yeah. The nice thing that I like about that is it forces the conversation to the forefront without mm-hmm. forcing the choice. Uh, if you walk into a room and there's an area off to the side that says the quiet area, mm-hmm. now you know the contrast is that this is the loud area. Like I it, think it, that used to be smoke breaks. Yes. But peop- not as many people smoke. <laughs> yes. As they used to. <laughs> That's true, which is the weirdest <laughs> thing to think about now. The band needs a smoke break. But there, I mean, yeah, I do like the concept of quiet areas or signage. And, you know, to yeah. go back to that monitor engineer question I had, of course, I was being facetious. But, yeah. you know, if you if you limit people's packs and the output of their in-ears, um, what does that mean for the free market of in-ear monitor manufacturing? Uh, also, our monitor engineer is going to have to start carrying liability insurance. Mm-hmm. Same with front of house. I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of aspects to this. And if there's anybody that you've ever seen with a toolbox that they carry around to get around any audio problem or shortcoming, it's a monitor engineer. Yep. They, they're not going to be limited by that. So if you force a limit then all you're doing is you're forcing people's hands to subvert that because the whole concept of art, the concept of performance is to subvert the norms, to subvert expectations, to give a, and from the audience's perspective, it's to give a, I hate to use the word, but like an indulgent experience. Mm -hmm. A concert is supposed to be larger than life, bigger than you're expecting, and something that is atypical and out of your normal and something that like really transports you to a different experience. Uh, and sometimes makes you nauseous. Sometimes <laughs> makes you kidding. nauseous. I mean, no, but a concert should be the equivalent of a amusement park in, in the amount of wow factor, in the amount of I've never experienced that factor, um, but without the lines. It shouldn't be a, a golf cart ride. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Although, I mean, of course, you can argue that that can be done emotionally without volume and dynamic dynamic mixing doesn't have to be hazardous mixing and all, you know, that's like... Just like a roller coaster can be safe. Yes, exactly. You can give an experience without without injuring the people because you have a yeah. responsibility. So it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a multi-lane street.
Heather, I'm, I'm curious if you want to talk a little bit about how um, we've, we're transitioning now to a lot more telehealth visits and, and virtual visits, and especially on the new platform, the, the Tuned platform. I, to me, that's just been changing my practice so rapidly and expanding it because it's giving people access to me. Where, honestly, Frank, even up till a couple years ago, people people were flying. I had a woman fly from Utah. I had a guy drive from Texas to come see me. There's no need for that anymore. Yeah. So if people weren't aware of that, they should be, that they can see us online mm-hmm. and have a full consultation appointment with us, which is which they should do. So I'm definitely going to link Tuned, definitely, because it does open up... <laughs> I'm just giggling because I had a guy I called and asked if he wanted a morning appointment because I had a cancellation instead of his afternoon. He goes, uh, well, I actually just left and I'm five hours away. So yeah, like, what are you doing? Why aren't we doing a yeah. French, Why aren't we doing a televisit? He just wanted to. Oh, well. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's really amazing. And that's, I, gosh, what you just said about that guy. And I get that all the time, and which is great. I mean, it's really a special thing when someone drives all day to come see you. Yeah. But on the other hand... Like the testing and stuff, it's not that we test in a unique way other uh-huh. than we sometimes include extended highs. If they can get that done near them, get a good set of impressions done, our value is our brains yep. and our experience and what we can offer them that way. So I would say they could supp- they could stay home, especially mm-hmm. with gas prices right now, and they could supp- <laughs> take that gas money, put it toward a telehealth appointment. <laughs> <laughs> Probably costs about the same. Yeah, that seriously. plus a meal on the road and you just yeah. could have just paid for your telehealth. Yep. Heather, thank you for doing this. Talking Ears is a production of Earmark Hearing Conservation. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode and hearing wellness in general. The theme music is by Scott Hallam. You can find more of his music at audiodowsing.com. Additional production and editing assistance is by Juan Vazquez and Mary Kim. And a special thanks in this episode to producer and engineer Ben Payne for providing additional tracks of Heather's playing. Thanks for listening. <laughs>